Scripture reading this evening comes from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9. We'll read from verses 1 to 22. Hebrews 9, verses 1 to 22. Then verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service in a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant, overlaid around about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which is stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of heifers sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience? from that works to serve the living God. And for this cause is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator, for a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon, neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats and with water and his scarlet wool and hyssop and his sprinkled loaf the book and all the people, saying, 
This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. This far the reading of the Word of God. So as we continue our exposition through the book of Hebrews, tonight we'll meditate in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 22. But before we begin, let's ask for the Lord's blessings once again. Let's pray. Most holy God, we come into thy presence now, Lord, praying that thou would speak to us, that thou would plot out our iniquity, even as we sing, Lord that thou would be merciful unto us. O Lord, may thy Holy Spirit go before us right now and open our hearts, our ears, and our eyes to see and to hear thy voice, to behold thy glory, Lord, and to worship thee in spirit and in truth. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The author to the Hebrews has been encouraging the readers to persevere in the Christian pilgrimage, as we have been seeing. For that, his main point is to show that Jesus is better. And it would be foolish, foolishness to go back to the old ceremonial rites after Jesus has come. We saw how Jesus is better than the angels in chapter 1. How he is better than Moses in chapter 3. How he brings a better rest in chapter 4. He's a better priest in chapter 5. He's a better than the Levites in chapter 7. And finally, in the last chapter, chapter 8, he inaugurates a better covenant. So now the author has shown for so many different angles how Jesus is better. So now he will speak of a better access to God through a better sacrifice. And this theme will go until chapter 10 as this is a central aspect of Christian theology. At the time that this letter was written, the temple was most likely still standing. So it was before the destruction of the temple. So what the author is writing here is very important to prepare those Christians for what is about to happen. We could say that God's providence was about to bring to fulfillment what he has already promised before. The authors show how Jesus is better high priest and inaugurated a better covenant. So how does this impact worship? What does this have to do with worship? What do we do with the temple? How can we access God? And to meditate on this, we'll divide our text into two points. First, the limited access, verses 1 to 10. And second, the price of access, the price that was paid for access 11 to 22. So first let's consider the limited access. Verse 1 begins with a reference to the first covenant. Referring to the old covenant as it says. That the old covenant had a worldly sanctuary. You see it's a, it's a contrast with the heavenly sanctuary that is spoke that Christ has entered to minister. As we saw in the last chapter. 
Verse 2 calls it a tabernacle or a tent. This worldly sanctuary was a tent, a tabernacle. And it represented God's dwelling place among His people. The people were not free to worship God anywhere they wanted or whatever way they wanted. But it was regulated by God's instructions. And it had to be done through rites and ceremonies. So this earthly sanctuary, as it's called, was the way that God established to regulate how to approach Him. This tabernacle appears for the first time in the wilderness, where the Israelites learned about the gospel. It was God's providence to teach them about the gospel. You see, there is a way to have access to God. But He had all these limitations at the same time. The tabernacle was a visible message of the gospel. The message was simple. God is holy and basically inapproachable. So to come anywhere near Him, you have to follow these requirements. And even so, it was a very limited access. This is how the Old Testament believer experienced God. It was not false worship, but it was all from a distance. It was very limited. The tabernacle was a tent. It was a literal tent as they were in the wilderness. And that's the word used in verse 2, a tent. And whatever they would go, they would bring the tent with them, the tabernacle with them, until finally Israel inherited the promised land and they could finally build a permanent place, a temple, a stone tabernacle that would endure in Jerusalem. But regardless if it was a stone building or a tent, the layout, the design was the same. And the purpose was the same as well. The more you enter into the temple, the more restricted it gets. See, picture this image. There was a large courtyard around the place with fences around, an outer court. And there was a smaller place within that that courtyard, a closed structure with two chambers. There was a, that, and that place was the tabernacle itself. And the picture is that as you walk in, the more restricted it gets until you finally enter into the place where God dwells. The outer court was open to the public. That's where the people, the Israelites, would come to bring their offerings. They would come to the outer court. Then the first chamber of the sanctuary, the holy place, This part was accessible only to the Levites, more specifically to the priests, who would come there daily on duty. The priests ministered daily in the holy place. And then separated by a curtain, by a thick curtain, there was the holiest place, the inner chamber of the tabernacle. The inner sanctuary was accessible only to the high priest and only once a year at the Day of Atonement. So the very structure of the tabernacle shows the restrictiveness, the limitations of approaching the presence of God. His holiness demands a very uh, limited and careful approach. And our text begins in verse 2 with a description of the first part of this tabernacle, the first chamber of the tabernacle, the holy place. And here the altar describes all that was in that place, all the furniture of the holy place, starting with the candlestick. If you go to Exodus 25, verse 31, 
you will see that that candlestick looked like a tree. It had leaves, it had fruits, it, it, it resembles a tree with branches and flowers with seven lamps. And the priest would ensure that that light was always on. The light of the candlestick had to be on always. And then right across the candlestick, there was a table, the table of the showbread, a golden table on which there were 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. They were baked fresh every week, and once a week, the priest would eat the bread who came to minister in that place to put a new bread. So there were a lot of symbols here representing God's people, but also representing God's provision to His people, and most of all, representing the restoration of communion with God. So just in these two elements, there were a lot of symbols. And we don't have time to, do, to dive into all the significance of these things. But just notice how interesting it is that on the one side you had the candlesticks, and on the other side you had the bread. And the light of the candlestick was always upon the bread. Never went off, always shining upon the bread. Really giving the beautiful picture of God's light always perpetually shining upon His people. They are represented. As picture lessons, all these were pointing to Christ. And it makes sense now how when Christ comes, when the New Testament comes, then Christ identifies Himself no other way than the light of the world. John 8, chapter 2, verse 12. And after He multiplied bread, He identifies Himself then as the bread of life in John 6, 48. So when he claimed to be these things, he was not referring just to the, the material stuff that we have. But he was saying, you see, I am the fulfilling of all that that was in the tabernacle. I am fulfilling all these elements of how you approach God, of the presence of God in your midst. So Jesus is God's provision to sustain us, just like the light of the candlestick and the bread. There is also the golden altar of incense, which was part of the holy place, but it was right against the veil of the holiest place. That's why it's mentioned in verse 4. The priest that enters into the holy of holies, the holiest place, enters through this cloud of incense. So it's connected to the holy of holies as well. So both, both places were continually filled with smoke, with incense that came from, from that object. And we have this picture in the Psalms, referring to the prayers of the people ascending to God. Psalm 141, verse 2. Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense. It's like a perpetual prayer coming to the, before the presence of God, being offered to God, as way of intercession on behalf of Israel. So we can connect the smoke and the perpetual light upon the loaves, connecting to the work of intercession done by Christ, the high priest, making the entrance to the holiest place. So Christ is the one who all those elements were pointing forward as the way that you get into the presence of God. But if the outer part of the sanctuary was great, even greater was the inner chamber, the inner part, the holy of holies, which is what we have in verses 3 and 4. 
we start with the image of the veil. Verse 3. And after the second veil. This curtain would separate God's presence from everybody else, from the people. Not only the common folks who could only come to the outer court, but also even from the priests who could not even look into the holiest place. Who couldn't walk into there, but could even look into the holiest place. The veil was a a separation, a, a blocking, a door of separation from God's holy place to the rest of the people. Didn't allow you to even see what was going on in the Holy of Holies. God was with His people, that's true. That was God's presence dwelling with His people. But you see, it was limited. It was so limited. So many limitations. Separated from His people at the same time. The next image that we have is the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 4. What is an ark? It's a box. It's a chest, right? Designed to store something important. Children, perhaps you don't see that very often more nowadays. But in every house, there used to be a photo album. Perhaps your parents or your grandparents, you still have some around. Well, perhaps you have some photo albums in your house with some graduation pictures. Or perhaps when you got married or when children were born or of a nice trip that you did with your family. In any case, the photo album you kept, the pictures that were most precious to you. It's a way of remembering these moments. It is a picture reminder of your history, of the great moments that happened in your life. Well, the things within this ark are a treasure. It's like a treasure chest. These objects are reminders of God's faithfulness. In fact, they are a summary of Israel's whole history. And what was in the ark? Well, we read that there was the manna, which reminded them how God's provided for them in the wilderness. And then there is also the Ten Commandments, which mark the beginning of Israel as a covenant nation, the beginning of their walk as, as their new identity as God's people. And then there is also Aaron's rod, the blossom marking that Aaron was chosen to be the high priest, and most of all, marking that God would appoint and provide a priest for them. So the Ark of the Covenant was this treasure box that contained the commandments, the manna, Aaron's rod. But different than normal treasure box, this one was not supposed to be touched or seen even by us, only by God. This ark had a lid on it. It was not supposed to be open. And it was supposed to be carried with poles, not even to be touched, but to be carried with poles. No one could touch. And perhaps you remember the story in Second Samuel verse six, uh, chapter 6, when Uzzah, trying to hold the ark of the covenant for preventing it to fall into the ground, touched the ark, and he was fulminated. He was killed right there. So you see, all these things were there. They were a representation of God's presence. But there were so many restrictions for all of them. But the most precious thing about the ark was what was above the ark. Verse 5. And over it, the cherubims of glory, shadowing 
the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak. The topic of the ark, there were golden cherubims, and with their wings they covered their faces, and this forms a throne that represented the place where God dwells, His throne where He sits. The mercy seat represents God's throne room where He dwells. Interesting how it is called a mercy seat. It was not, but it was so inaccessible. It was frightening even. It was a frightening place. It was fear by those who approached that place. For those who entered that place, there was fear involved in this room. They were certainly happy every time the high priest would walk into the holiest place. But they perhaps were even happier when he walked out of that place alive. And by walking out alive, that was a sign that the sacrifice was accepted by God. So you see, there was, was fear involved into walking into the presence of God. But despite of how great and how fearful that throne room was, it was a picture. It was just a picture of God's real throne room in heaven. See, that room, that inner chamber, was a fearful place. It was a holy place. But even so, it was just a picture pointing to the real throne room of God in heaven. Sometimes we can lose the perspective that God's throne room is a scary place. Consider Isaiah chapter 6 for a moment. Isaiah had a vision of God's throne room. And there we find one of the most glorious creatures in creation, the the seraphims. And yet... They had to cover their faces. They had to cover their feet. And as they flew over God's throne room, the holiness of the Lord overwhelmed them. You see, they, these creatures, they're so glorious. They had no sin whatsoever. And yet, as they flew around God's throne room, they cried out not once, but three times, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. See, even for the seraphims, God's holiness is overwhelming. They dare not look into His face directly. The holiness of God is overwhelming to anyone. And when Isaiah has this vision, this glorious vision of God's throne room, the godly prophet Isaiah falls on his face on earth and he says, he's going to be destroyed. He's undone. He's going to be fuminated. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There's something glorious and frightening about God's glory and holiness. That anyone that approaches Him immediately is overwhelmed by it. They have a sense that a mortal man dare not stand before this holy God. But at the same time, God's tabernacle was a symbol of God's presence being restored to His people. See, the tabernacle functioned as a micro-Eden. Just like in Eden, they could access and walk with God and be into God's presence. The tabernacle represented a restoration of that. So that's why as we read about the tabernacle in the Old Testament, 
We have all these symbols resembling a garden. We have leaves, we have fruits, we have branches. It was resembling a garden. And even clearer than that is what was in the curtain of the holiest place. Cherubims were drawn in the curtains of the most holy place, guarding the entrance into the presence of God. Just like what? Just like the Garden of Eden. When man was cast outside of the garden, and cherubims were placed there at the entrance of the place to guard the entrance into the presence of God. So they are like guardians of those who walk into the presence of God. So you see, the tabernacle was representing the restoration of that communion with God, walking back into Eden, walking back into the presence of God once again. So those who walked into the Holy of Holies were representing a new creation, once again walking into the place where God dwells. And what is, and that's why, although it was a fearful throne, it was also a throne of mercy, that once again a way into God's presence was provided. All these symbols, they were majestic, but yet the access was so limited into God. While the old covenant stood, the access would be restricted. The tabernacle was only in Jerusalem. It's not like nowadays that you can find a church everywhere and anywhere. No, the tabernacle was only in Jerusalem. So to go to the, the tabernacle, you had to travel to Jerusalem. And even being there, you could only stand in the outer court. You could not walk in there. You could not enter where God's presence was. And not everyone could be a priest, only the Levites. And not all, every priest could walk into the inner chamber, into God's holiest place. But even the high priest could only do once a year, once a year into the holiest place. You see so many restrictions. And if that wasn't restricted enough for just the high priest to go in there, He had to go there offering a sacrifice for the people and for himself. He was a sinner too. So he could not just walk in there freely. He also entered there with fearfulness. Leviticus 16 verse 2. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, who was the high priest, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark. Lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. See, not even Aaron had freedom to walk into the holy place at any time. Even him would come there with fear. Lest he die. Can you imagine if when we walk into church, there was a, 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 a sign saying, don't come at any time, Lest you die. It would certainly get people in time for church, but it would be fearful. So by all these limitations, it was the Holy Spirit telling them that the way to the Holy of Holies was not yet open. Verse 8. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet, not yet, made manifest. Well, as the first tabernacle was yet standing. See, the expectation was there 
They knew that one day the restrictions would be removed, but it was not yet, not yet made manifest. All these limitations show us why Hebrews 4, 16 is so wonderful. Let us, New Testament believers, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, in time of need, let's come boldly into the throne room of God. You see the difference? That now, no more with all those restrictions, but now in time of need, we have access into the presence of God. Can we imagine if when we come to church, everybody would have to stay in the parking lot one would be allowed to walk into church. And then offerings would be collected in the parking lot. And then only the elders and the deacons would walk into church. But then only once a year, the pastor would walk into the sanctuary. Can you imagine so many restrictions? Do you see the privilege that we have? That we don't stand into the outer courts anymore. But we walk into the very presence of God. What a privilege we have as New Testament believers that we have this access. Some people still think that they have the same relationship with God. Oh, I, I did this or I did that, so I, I cannot. I, I should not come to that place. I, sh- I cannot go to church. If I approach Him right now, I might die. See? What you did wrong should motivate you even more to go to church. Even more to seek Him. To besiege Him. To storm the mercy seat. The way to God is now possible through Christ. Because of what He has done. We don't need to stand in the parking lot. We can access Him. Because of these limitations. Verse 9 calls it. A figure, a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices. The word for figure here is a very familiar word in which were offered, but different than what he has used before. He has used both shadows, images, but now he refers to it as figure. The word here is parable. It's a parable. A parable is something that serves as a model, as an example, pointing beyond itself for a period in the redemptive history. You see, it was there to teach us about something. It had a purpose on that time in the redemptive history. But now that the present time, that the new covenant has arrived, those sacrifices give place to a better sacrifice. Because those sacrifices, verse 9 continues, could not make him that did service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. As pertaining to the conscience. So he was all exterior. He could not deal with the conscience. The Old Testament rites and ceremonies did not cleanse the conscience of sin. Have you ever struggled with a guilty conscience? There are so many sins that can lead us to struggle with a guilty conscience. 
And the world, the world offers so many ways to deal with a guilty conscience. But none of them seems to solve the matter. And here are some methods that people use to try to deal with a guilty conscience. The first method is denial. To say, well, I have no problem at all. I have not committed any sin. Why should I feel guilty? So you, you suppress it. You deny it. You are in denial of what you have done. The second is secular counseling. And this goes from a secular psychiatrist who will say that you shouldn't live in bondage with your past. That is, oh, it's all okay. You don't need to feel guilty. Or nowadays, even online gurus. You don't even need to go to seek a secular psychiatrist anymore. There are online coaches and gurus advising on your, your spiritual and emotional life. You can find them on Facebook or whatever platform you use. People who know nothing about you, who don't care about you. And yet, you think their advice is good for some reason. The third is busyness. You can bury a guilty conscience with work or even with entertainment. So as long as you stay busy, you don't need to face it. You don't need to face the reality of your guilty conscience. So you'll be okay as long as you stay busy. Fourth is good deeds. It's like maybe you have cut down so many trees that now you feel like you should plant some. You did evil, so now if you do some good, maybe you balance the scales and appease your conscience. And the fifth is addictions. If you cannot clear your conscience, you try to dry it in addictions. Alcohol, drugs, pornography, anything that for a brief time would give you this sense of relief. Ultimately, you know that this is not solving your problems. But you gave up. And you just want a brief relief. See, a guilty conscience can affect for many, many, many years. And none of those things will solve the problem. The solution for a guilty conscience is dealing with sin. And the way for sin to be washed and removed is through the atoning work of Jesus. What changed our guilty conscience is not to deny that we have sin, but to know that our sins were paid in Christ. Even as we're saying right from Psalm 51, to bring before the Lord, even to bring before Him our sins, but you know that there is a way that our sins can be washed. And that through the blood of the Lamb, though my sins be scarlet, I shall be made whiter than snow. As Hugh Martin said, and doubtless, it is safe to say that where sin hath been, glory cannot come. Save by priesthood. For the antagonist of glory is shame, even as death is the opposite of life. And priesthood's function is to turn sin. The occasion of shame 
into the counter occasion of exceeding glory. Not through human priesthood, but through Christ's priesthood. It is through this final and perfect priest that we can turn the occasion of shame into the counter occasion of exceeding glory. To bring him before him and to know that our sins has been dealt with in him. It's the perfect priest who changes what was once occasion to shame to now be occasion to exceeding glory. Though the tabernacle, the Old Testament tabernacle was access to God, it was limited access. And while the tabernacle stood, there would still be limitations to access God. All the limitations and, and shadowy nature of these verses give the, the perfect dark background on which the beauty of Christ will shine in the next verses. The superiority and perfect mediation of Christ. The price of access. Verse 11, but Christ. We thought that there would be no access to God. But Christ. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come. By a greater and more perfect tabernacle. Not made with hands. That is to say not of this building. But Christ. Beautiful way to begin the verse. But Christ. Verse 1 to 10 showed that what was lacking in the old economy... And now it gives space to show the greatness of Jesus. The completeness of the new that Jesus has inaugurated. Jesus offered a better sacrifice. Because he entered into a better place to minister. And he offered a better sacrifice. Verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves. But by his own blood he entered in once in the holy place. Having obtained eternal redemption for us. It was not by the blood of goats, but by the blood of Jesus. Who entered the holy place to obtain an eternal redemption. Not just redemption here, but eternal redemption for us. In fact, everything is eternal with Jesus. If you notice, Christ through the eternal spirit, verse 14. Secures eternal redemption, verse 12. And an eternal inheritance, verse 15. That's the power of what Christ has obtained. Everything is eternal with Him. That's the price for obtaining access to God for us. His blood. His sacrifice. Verse 14 again speaks of Christ as the Lamb without blemish. Not only he was perfect, but he also is divine. The author has been speaking of how Jesus is greater and better than everything else. Now here is the application of this. That he was able to offer a better sacrifice. A sacrifice that no one else could. He is able to purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Verse 14. Notice the contrast with verse 13. Sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh. The old covenant could only give purification of the flesh. But now, 
But now Jesus purges your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus purifies even the inner man. The old covenant could wash the outside. Consider, for example, how easy it was to be considered unclean in the Old Testament. Touching a corpse would be unclean. Someone with a, a disease like leprosy would be unclean. Menstruation would be unclean. Childbirth would be unclean. And even touching anyone who was unclean would also make you unclean. There were just a lot of ways to be unclean. And they were all related to the, to the exterior. They would get washed, wait for a certain time, then they were clean. But here is Jesus who cleaned the inside. They knew, the Old Testament believers knew, that the ceremonies could, could only get the exterior clean. But it was Jesus who cleaned the interior, the inside. Jesus Verse 14, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, was able to clean the inner man. The Old Testament waited for this day. We look back to this day. They were looking forward to the coming of this day. It's by seeing what Christ has done that we can live with confidence. No more guilty conscience, but with confidence and enjoy the presence of God. Christ's coming, changed and fulfilled everything. So the author now moves to explain the testament and the sacrifice that he has accomplished for us. And we'll consider each one of them. First, the testament, verse 15. And for this cause, he's the mediator of the new testament. The Greek word for testament and covenant is the same. So this word has been used throughout chapter 8, referring to covenant. But in Greek, it's also used to refer to testament. A dictionary defines a testament as a legal document that expresses a person's wishes as to how their property is to be distributed after their death, and as to which person is to manage the property until its final distribution. In other words, the testament deals with who will get the inheritance. And you will only inherit something after the writer of the testament dies. So the author is saying that Jesus has conquered an amazing inheritance for us. And that the way to get this inheritance is through his death. Notice that Jesus leaves his people an inheritance. He didn't leave us a salary, meaning that we didn't work for it. He doesn't give us interest, meaning that we didn't contribute with anything, and we could now be receiving the interest of it. No. He gave us an inheritance, meaning that we didn't work for it at all, and we didn't deserve it either. That he had to die to give it to us. Through Christ, we receive this inheritance. You see, although he didn't break the covenant, he died for us, covenant breakers, so that we could receive the inheritance and the blessings of the covenant. But it wasn't enough for him to die. Blood had to be shed. 
he had to be sacrificed. The ink that signed the legal document of our inheritance was the blood of Jesus. That's the second point that Christ accomplishes for us through his blood. The summary of the author's argument is found in the end of verse 22. Without shedding of blood is no remission of sin. The Old Testament was already filled with blood. This was blood everywhere. Shedding of blood was not invented on the cross. Verse 18. Neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. Meaning there was a lot of blood. Then he gives a list from verses 19 to 21. Of how blood was everywhere in the Old Testament. When a sacrifice happened in the Old Testament. They would take a hyssop branch. As he mentions in verse 19. Dip it in blood. And sprinkle it. On the people and on everything. In the objects of the sanctuary. On the people. And sprinkle on everything. To signify God's cleansing. With that blood. God's sign of purification. Was the. Sprinkling. Of the blood. That's why in Psalm 51. As we sang tonight. David asked to be cleansed with hyssop. For the blood to be sprinkled upon him. In the Old Testament writes, there was a lot of blood. Always blood. Blood everywhere. Blood served as a lesson to remind us of the cost of forgiving us. People would always remember the blood. Verse 20. This is the blood of the testament which God has enjoined unto you. Now we could think, well, that's, that was for them. But notice what Jesus says, what Christ says in the institution of the Lord's Supper. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remissions of sins. Matthew 26, 28. So we have in the New Covenant, in the Lord's Supper, the same thing. Notice how Jesus here made it about himself. Moses say that this is the blood which God has joined unto you. But Jesus says this is my blood. So it's not like we don't remember the blood anymore. But we remember that it has already been shed. Not any blood. Not the blood of bulls and goats. But Christ's blood. It has already been shed on the cross. The fact that blood had to be shed points to the seriousness of our sins. We saw how God is holy, holy, holy. And the fact that He's holy means that no unholiness can dare to approach Him. Because God is holy and just, He must punish sin. So the sinfulness of our sin is so extreme that it needs an extreme solution, which is Jesus dying on the cross. The Puritan Raph Venin in the book The Sinfulness of Sin explained this contrast. He says, As God is holy, all holy, only holy, altogether holy, and always holy, so sin is sinful, all sinful, only sinful, altogether sinful, and always sinful. 
in my flesh there dwelleth no good thing and as in, in God there is no evil so in sin there is no good God is the chiefest of goods and sin the chiefest of evils as no good can be compared with God for goodness so no evil can be compared with sin for evil there was no way that not even that God could stand, not even a single sin, not even a small sin, could approach His holiness. The sinfulness of sin is so great, the evil, that it could not stand before a holy God. So the cross is a reminder of what was the cost to save me from my sins. God didn't simply say, your sins are forgiven. Come along. No, Jesus had to die and shed his blood to save us. Why did Jesus have to die? Why do we have to talk about his death? You could just focus on his teachings. For some people, the reality that Jesus had to die on the cross as an atoning sacrifice is an absurd doctrine. Some people go as far as to call it the divine child abuse. Saying that how could the father put the son on the cross and... See, why did God simply... Why did God not simply forgive us? Jesus is not a helpless victim. But he is the high priest. Offering and being offered at the same time as a sacrifice for our sins. Verse 22, without shedding of blood. But, oh, Lord, nothing but the blood of Jesus now draws near unto thee. We give thanks to thee, Lord, for the perfect sacrifice that was offered in our behalf. Not some sins, but all sins. Past sins, present sins, future sins, all sins are dealt with by Christ's sacrifice. Without shedding of blood, it's no remission of sin. It's only one way to atone for sin. And that is by the blood of Jesus. And after all, the way to God could have been lost. After the fall, the, the, way, the access to God could have been lost. No more we could walk into the Garden of Eden the presence of God could have been lost from us. But by His grace, He promised a Redeemer. Out of the seed of the women, the head crusher would come, who would reverse the curse and restore our access to God. Through the Old Testament, the promise was there. It was there. God was there with His people, but yet so limited. The access to God was so limited. The way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. But Jesus. Then Jesus comes. And he changed everything. Didn't he? The sun turned black. As this transaction took place. As the just was given for the unjust. And as the curse climaxes in those last hours. 
Christ cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus experienced all the agony that our sins deserved. This was the price to buy us back. And he fulfilled all those symbols. Everything that we talked about, he fulfilled it all. As he offered the final sacrifice. Once and for all. Matthew 27, 51. Behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain. From top to bottom. Behold, the separation is removed. What was once a door of separation from God's dwelling place is now removed. And the access to God is now wide open. It is finished. There's no clear picture, is there? The curtain that represented that separation from God's presence is now removed. All limitations to access God when Christ came were fulfilled and removed. What a good news for us. As New Testament believers, that we can come with boldness through the veil. We can enjoy this communion and fellowship with the presence of the saints and even with angels, as we'll see later, worshiping our triune God. Through Jesus Christ. Who ministers in our midst. As we saw. Indeed we can say like the song. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Praise the Lord for the high priest who has walked into the holiest place and offered a final sacrifice once and for all and that now we can come unto him nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray to our Lord. Lord God Almighty, we give thanks to Thee, Lord. For now we live in the time that the Old Testament saints look forward to see that the patriarchs, the prophets talked about, that they long to see. Now we are living, Lord, in these days, the last days, the latter days. The inaugurated kingdom is here. It has begun. What a privilege we have. What a privilege we have, Lord, to now look back and see, yes, all that the Old Testament spoke about has been fulfilled. The promises are true. Yes, I can look back and say, yes, the perfect high priest has come. The perfect Lamb of God has come and has shed His blood for us. The limitations are removed. 
and the access to God are now wide open. Lord, so as we come today, we want to praise Thee, to worship Thee, Lord, for who Thou art, to profess, Lord, that holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth, Lord, is filled with Thy glory. That by ourselves, Lord, there would be no way we could stand in thy presence. That because of our sins, there would be no way we could come unto thee, Lord. But, oh, Lord, nothing but the blood of Jesus now draws near unto thee. We give thanks to thee, Lord, for the perfect sacrifice that was offered in our behalf. And we want to praise Thee forever and ever for all that Thou hast done in our place. Lord, we want this worship service to be a preparation for what we will do in eternity. To sing praises before Thy mercy seat, Thy heavenly mercy seat, proclaiming with all saints and angels, Holy, holy, holy is the land was his lane before the foundation of the world. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our only hope in life and death. Amen.